What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Wow. Tastes like chicken. Tastes like chicken. <laughs> Very crunchy. Like chips and stuff like that. They actually don't taste like crickets. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. What you heard there might well be your Christmas dinner in a few years' time. Keep listening to find out what those lucky people were tasting, why it might just save the world. We also tell you about a new treasure trove of data showing just how much federal stimulus checks have boosted the spending of black and Hispanic families and how inflation and a slower economy could take them back to square one. But first... Tune in, drop out, lie flat. Their parents may have worked 12-hour days for decades supporting China's breakneck economic growth, but a growing number of young people in this famously industrious nation would rather not work at all. You could say it was the Asian counterpart to the great resignation that has business executives scratching their heads in the US and Europe. But the lie flat movement also tells us quite a lot about how Chinese society has changed and it could even put the government's grand plans for the future at risk. In a minute, I'll discuss all of that with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Shuli Ren. But first, here's our Hong Kong-based China economy reporter, Tom Hancock. In what has been branded as the Great Resignation, US workers are quitting their jobs in record numbers. More than 24 million did so from April to September this year. Millions have dropped permanently out of the labour force, and similar trends are being seen in parts of Europe. But even in China, where coronavirus has been kept largely under control and the economy has doubled in size in the last decade, people are having similar feelings. The country's lie-flat movement, jump-started by a social media post, is also about opting out. It's a reaction against a system in which a gruelling 996 work schedule 9am to 9pm, six days a week, is common in industries like technology. So is unrelenting pressure from family, society, and even the government to keep climbing the ladder. In October, thousands of employees at Chinese tech giants, including Alibaba Group and the owner of TikTok, groused about their long work hours in an online campaign called Workers' Lives Matter. And it's not just a white-collar phenomenon. In the southern city of Shenzhen, migrant workers from the countryside, once celebrated for being willing to work tough jobs in manufacturing, are rejecting manual jobs and sometimes prefer to spend their time playing online games, picking up day jobs as needed. Some see parallels between lie-flat sentiment in China and similar ideas that emerged in Japan in the 1990s after its economic growth slowed sharply, suggesting China might be facing impending Japan-style stagnation. But others argue it's more like the 1960s-style counterculture movements that cropped up in the US and Europe in a period of affluence, with ordinary people seeking a lower-pressure society that's more focused on personal development than material success. 
That's the view of Chen Ziyang, a 25-year-old who lives in Shenzhen while studying for a master's degree online. The society needs more definition about success. All the people around you are doing so well, or you are all competing for the same job or for the same kind of success. So you kind of like uh, fear you are going to left out. So some people just give up. Even though China, the US and Europe are very different economies, we can connect China's lying flat discussion with the concept of the great resignation in developed countries, says Xiang Biao, director of the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology in Germany. Both are about questioning the pursuit of wealth at an individual and a social level. They, they, they emerge at the same time, and we can make a connection and even link them to bigger ideas, such as degrowth, such as uh, sustainability. And this is somehow all related because it is about overheating, about a society become excessively competitive and just not sustainable, not only in terms of environmental extraction, but also the mental, you know, the mental balance is not sustainable. Among the new dropouts is Milena Kula, a 26-year-old from Germany who lost her job at the height of the pandemic last year. She has chosen to set up an environmentally sustainable commune in the countryside rather than seeking full-time work. Am I enough just the way I am? Or do I constantly need new equipment, new material, new goods in my life, new experiences to feel full in some form? So that's something that really changed here. In developed countries, Pressure has been building for decades. Incomes have stagnated, job security has become precarious, and the costs of housing and education have soared, making it harder to build a financially stable life. Milena's story indicates how the pandemic has sometimes converted those simmering concerns into action. Will the Great Resignation and Lifelat have a longer-term impact? While they are a challenge to conventional ideas about work and consumption, Xiang Biao points out that they seem to lack specific demands about how to change society. Many will be waiting to see if those ideas emerge. For Bloomberg News, I'm Tom Hancock in Hong Kong. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. So I wanted to talk a bit more about lying flat and what it tells us about China's future with Bloomberg opinion columnist Shuli Ren in Hong Kong. Shuli, welcome to Stephanomics. I love the opening line of a column you wrote the other day. China's young people are stressed out. I mean, there are, there are concrete forces making young people's lives more stressful in China. And the lie flat movement is just one reaction to that. So tell us more. Uh, absolutely, Stephanie. Uh, so, so like uh, after the Chinese government's uh, big tech and big real estate developer crackdown, like uh, uh, that actually ruined uh, a lot of the job prospects for China's uh, young people, especially those fresh university graduates. I mean, China has been turning 
out about uh, 10 million uh, university graduates every year. And in the past, they already struggled to find good jobs. And now the jobs are even fewer than before. And then like uh, in the graduating class of 2020, only one third decided to go into the job market with another third saying, oh, I'm just going to try to, you know, uh, go on to grad school because, you know, like uh, when there's a recession, everyone applies for grad school, right? So some young people, they just say, oh, I'm just going to take some time off lie on my parents' cultures and figure out what they want to do. And I guess one of the one of the things that's happening is that, uh, you know, China's getting richer as a country and now it can have dropouts just the way that, you know, the US had dropouts in the 60s. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, be, being able to lie flat, to be honest, is a luxury <laughs> good, right? <laughs> and also like uh, the the cost of uh, uh, consumption for a lot of young people is coming down. Like uh, 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 China's uh, Gen Z, just like uh, elsewhere in US and in the UK, they don't need very much money. Or, like they spend a lot of time on the internet, right? Surfing on the internet chat rooms and uh, playing video games. It doesn't cost very much money. So they, they don't need to really earn that much. So they, they can afford it in a way. And also the parents, uh, China has this major like only child policy, right? Right. So the parents will be like, oh, that's my baby. And uh, what can I do? I have to let them lie flat. I want to get on with to what how the government's responded. But before I get to that, I wanted to ask you about young women facing particular challenges in this labor force. Tell us a bit more about that. So the best jobs for young women are in the services industry, uh, such as financial industry, like uh, uh, and the me- media uh, industry. And then, like uh, in China, as in South Korea, like uh, when when uh, young people apply for jobs, they they need they oftentimes are asked to attach a photo of themselves, right? So so young women start to feel that oh, you know, if I I look better, that 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 makes me look a little bit more presentable. So a lot of them start to do a lot the plastic surgery like facelifts you know nose jobs so on so forth which is quite awful uh, a while back I, I also wrote about like aesthetics medicine in China and the most of the demand don't come from uh, older women but from 18 to 24 year olds and it has become such a problem and then like basically a facelift costs a lot of money and they don't have money for that right so so there are e-commerce websites such as Alibaba um, that uh, uh that give uh, young women so-called uh, uh, consumer loans to do those uh, um, aesthetics medicine procedures. Um, and then the government is calling a stop to that. They said that the, you know, uh, companies can no, no longer sell asset-backed securities, which are backed by uh, plastic, uh, facelift loans. Unbelievable. It's clearly alarming, I would think, for... China's government that has such big plans to to lead the world in several critical industries and become bigger and better and and more skilled as as a nation to have uh, young people dropping out like this. I mean, how's the government responded? I mean, President Xi Jinping is very, very worried. He he openly talked about uh, the lying flat problem uh, phenomenon in China. And then like uh, in October, so so like uh, China's, uh, the, the state council proposed this so-called dual training program. It, it, it's essentially the German model. Like uh, basically China thinks that the 
that the society is churning out too many fresh university graduates who just don't want to go to the factory floors because they feel like, oh, I, I did four years of undergraduate. Why do I want to go to the manufacturing sector, right? So as a result, they decide to lie flat. And China thinks um, that society has too many of these people. And they want to have more young people go into um, uh, like a so-called vocational training, like, uh, you know, you spend a few years uh, learning skills in the school, but also a few more years, you know, doing on-the-job training at the biggest uh, blue-chip companies uh, such as Huawei or the China's uh, power grid. And that seems to be their, their, their solutions. They want more young people to go into high-end manufacturing that does, you know, electric uh, EV supply chains or like uh, uh, chip manufacturing. And China doesn't have enough of that right now. Is any of that working? Well, this is just a start. <laughs> they, they just proposed this so-called German model in October. One problem is like um, there, there is a little bit of a stigma uh, when it comes to working on the factory floors. And the China's uh, middle class families, they don't really want their children to go into vocational school training. Right. I mean, the U.S., that that. Uh, hasn't been very successful either. So, so what the state council proposed is that uh, you know some high, very high end uh, like uh, vocational schools, they should be able to offer bachelor's degrees as well. So, so even though you are technically going to you know um, the German model, you will still have a degree. So perhaps that will uh, persuade the China's middle class families to allow their children to go into this kind of uh, German uh, dual, dual track training programs. There's an awful lot of countries that have tried to be more German in particularly this respect for many decades. Anybody who ever looks at the UK economy always concludes that we should be more German in our approach to education and have exactly this emphasis on technical skills and giving the same amount of esteem and regard to uh, people doing engineering and working on the the shop floor as to, to people in universities. And it hasn't worked. They've been trying to do it for decades. Yeah. China will try as well, I guess. But it certainly seems like the consequence of a new kind of China when you say that people say that they don't, it's demeaning to work on the shop on the shop floor or in factories. Presumably it's people's parents originally did that. I mean, all of this development has happened in very few generations. I mean, absolutely. My, my father was a chemical engineer and he did pretty well, like, uh, you know, like uh, in the last two decades, basically... Uh, exporting pollution, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, polluting the air and exporting products and stuff. And he did well, but he absolutely does not want me to go into engineering. He said it's tough work and that he rather be, you know, writing instead. Like the, the, the parents, they just don't want their children to go out to factory for. And I think it, it's a sign that the China is no longer really the typical emerging market. It kind of has emerged in a way, yeah. you know, like... Yeah, and you're, and you're part of the problem, it seems. Yeah, exactly. And the whole of China, I'm afraid, cannot all work at Bloomberg. <laughs> I'm afraid not. <laughs> Shuli Ren, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Bloomberg's recently published a series of articles under the tagline of race and recovery, looking at how America's economic recovery is playing out in minority communities. There's some really eye-opening data and stories about life in different parts of the economy in this series. And the final article came out this week and seemed to me particularly timely. 
as the US central bank starts to talk about raising interest rates, and we enter what feels like a new phase of the recovery. Andre Tata is a data journalist for Bloomberg based in New York, and he's with me now. Andre, the data you pulled together for this piece with Christopher Cannon this week paints a fascinating picture of US household spending through this pandemic period, and particularly the impact that government stimulus money has had on particular parts of the population. So just give us some of the big headlines from those numbers. Sure thing. And thank you so much um, for having me. So we got access to spending data for just over um, 10 million people, um, a constant sample over time that allowed us to really kind of look for those trends and changes in spending behaviors. And the thing that we really kind of struck us was just how much spending had surged, in particular among black and lower income um, families. Um, and we could see the very clear uh impact of of those federal um, stimulus checks, in part because both of those groups, black and um, lower income groups, are much more reliant on debit card spending. And we could see in this data just how much the debit card usage kind of rose around the time of those stimulus checks. Because you're only spending what you have. You can only spend what you have in your account because you don't necessarily get credit. Exactly. Right. Whereas, whereas for instance, if you look at higher income spenders or, you know, which, you know, also will capture a large portion of white and Asian spenders, their use of credit is much, much higher. They were clearly in this data and in other research has shown that they that um, those groups were much more able to hold back spending right in those first few months waiting this out, which is much harder for those groups which live a bit tighter, uh, you know, month to month. What kind of numbers are we talking about in terms of just the impact of the of the stimulus packages relative to what they would have spent, would have been spending in 2019, say? In the case of, say, spending by the black uh, people in our sample, it was up almost 40 percent um, this past kind of spring and summer compared to um, 2019 um, levels, which is, you know, a trend that would not be seen normally, you know, even factoring in just normal economic growth, normal inflation. That is a really significant bump up. Um, you know, and there certainly are other factors at play. But, you know, given kind of this, given the scope of that of that injection of cash really into into parts of the economy, it was significant. And across the sample, I think it was even it was 25 percent increase in spending, which only which only came back a certain amount when things like the unemployment benefits um, ran out in in the fall. Absolutely. I mean, as of October, which was the the last month that we had data for, overall spending across this group of about 10 million Americans was still up about 15 percent compared to um, 2019 levels. Um, we should just say briefly what this what this data was. Where did you get hold of these numbers? So this data comes from a company called Affinity um, Solutions Inc., which have been incredibly generous in working with us and often partner with the Fed academics to provide access to their data, which nationally uh, covers more than 100 million debit and credit cards um, and has an incredible amount of of depth to it. So, you know, it, it was really great to get access to this um, and being able to also use the data that they have linking demographics and income into this data, which is a very kind of complicated process that they undertake um, on their end. So, you know, it, it really gives a lot of insights that otherwise are hard to get uh, at that at that level of detail. 
And it's so exciting when you get hold of a big meaty data set like this and to have it be relatively timely as well. It's going through to October. And I have to say, you do a fantastic job of making it come alive with some really lovely, colourful graphics, which we're not doing justice to on the podcast. Right. A shout out to um, Christopher Cannon on the graphics who made all those beautiful graphics. I definitely um, recommend folks to go and um, take a look. I mean, inflation poses a risk to this big increase in spending power, right? When we look forward to next year, are we potentially seeing uh, this big improvement in, in particularly Black and Hispanic households spending power being being really hit by both inflation and potentially a slowing economy? I mean, absolutely, right? So this really kind of that injection of that federal of that um, the federal stimulus really closed a huge consumption gap and also showed us the kind of untapped potential, right, that exists in those communities who who just tend to have lower incomes and lower access um, to credit. So both so both kind of the fact that now most of that you know, additional cash has now been spent. And as you mentioned, inflation is going to begin to eat in to some of those core spending staple groups that just can't be avoided. Certainly food, certainly gas are ones where, you know, groups who have to go physically into work, who don't have a lot of ability to hold off spending or access credit. I think we will certainly see a very, you know, a very likely a kind of a uh, a tempering or even a full-on slowdown of this spending recovery, which, as we know, powers the vast majority of the U.S. economy. So, you know, it both has implications for the kind of equity side of the picture, but also just for the recovery um, uh, more broadly. Yeah, and it's certainly a lesson if you if you want to stimulate the economy and get people to spend, give it to poor people who don't have enough money to buy the things they want to buy. There actually are some fascinating studies out there which have really shown, though, that that stimulus money, if you were a wealthier household, you basically saved it all, right? So, I mean, really, it wasn't doing what it was meant to do, of course, for reasons of, you know, of efficiency. The, the idea was to just give checks all around. But as you mentioned, I mean, it, this data really shows that you can get the biggest bang for your stimulus buck by really sending it to those lower income households and communities of color, you know, who kind of aren't being able to tap into their full consumption potential. It's a difficult challenge for the Federal Reserve, though, right? Because they're supposed to be they're supposed to be focused on both stable inflation and full employment. They've said they're going to focus more on everybody's unemployment rate, not just the headline rate. And of course, unemp- black unemployment is still quite a lot higher um, than the than the average for the rest of the country. But they're kind of weighing up. You know, inflation hurts poor people, digs into their spending power, but not getting those jobs created, not bringing down unemployment hurts them too. It's a difficult challenge. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and and on top of that, there's also, you know, there's a strange momentum that um, we are in where we have, I think it's something like um, 10 million unfilled jobs. Uh, and yet we're still not seeing really that broad based, you know, decline in unemployment. So it really does present a very difficult obstacle course for the Fed policymakers. But also a fantastic time uh, to be doing data journalism. Thanks so much, Andre Tata. Thank you, Stephanie. I really appreciate it. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Finally, at the start of the program, I think I promised you the future of food. Here's Hong Kong reporter Huan Ha. Uh, it has a very nutty uh, taste. That's Malaysian entrepreneur Kevin Wu describing the perfect burger that he wants to put into restaurants and grocery stores. So we added some spices to give it that kind of familiar beefy taste, the grounded beef taste. And we've added certain uh, kind of uh, hacks like mushroom seasoning to give it that umami flavor. And the secret ingredient? We've powderized our crickets. You heard right, crickets roasted and processed into a fine brown powder. And then we mix it with other plant-based protein source. I think it's pretty tasty, especially when you when you look at the burger. It looks like a normal burger, smells like a normal burger, even sizzles like a normal burger. Wu's the founder and CEO of Ento, based in Kuala Lumpur. He's an evangelist for protein made from insects, and he's not alone. Startups from Europe, Asia, and North America are joining the race for alternative proteins and say bugs are making their way to our dinner plates. It's the next big frontier for planet-friendly, sustainable protein after fake meat. If you were to compare one kilogram of beef versus one kilogram of cricket powder, um, it will require 12 times less feed, 20 times less land, 2,000 times less water and emit 2,000 times less greenhouse gas emissions. So in its most natural form, insect-based protein, it has already high and rich levels of proteins and other macronutrients. And in an Ento promotional video, taste testers who tried the company's cricket snacks gave it a thumbs up. Wow, tastes like chicken. Tastes like chicken. (laughs) Very crunchy, like chips and stuff like that. They actually don't taste like crickets. (laughs) There's also a sustainability reason why edible bugs are on the menu. Constant Tedder is CEO of Fly Farm. You know, protein is, is needed. It's going to be an increasing need as the human population expands. His company is setting up industrial farms to harvest black soldier fly larvae. You know, th- those needs cannot be met sustainably. And so insect farming has a giant potential to be able to alter that entire protein landscape whether that use is going directly to humans or whether it's going to feeds that then go to animals that then go to humans. Tedder and other industry insiders say insect protein is gaining momentum. The industry was worth just a little under a billion dollars in 2019, and Barclays estimates it will be an $8 billion market by 2030. Still, there's a lot of catch-up that bug protein needs to do to challenge the plant-based protein industry that's now $30 billion strong. The market has uh, matured massively uh, in the last couple of couple of years. Katharina Unger's company, Livin Farms, is building industrial-scale automated factories that grow and harvest the larvae of black soldier flies. The CEO says one of the biggest obstacles standing in the way of insect protein being accepted as food is the yuck factor. I didn't grow up loving insects or loving the idea of eating insects. On the contrary, my hands were shaking when I was first doing doing it, you know, and I, I really had to also myself uh, get over this, this concept of eating a larva. Larvae is the industry's preferred term for what most people would describe are living, writhing maggots. 
So far, many of those willing to try larvae and other critters are young consumers looking to make planet-friendly choices. Here's Wu from Ento. Our current segments mostly urban, affluent um, millennials who are aware about um, the negative impact that traditional agriculture and meat-based production has on our planet. Some of the world's major producers are betting on that sustainability value proposition. They're now investing millions of dollars to help bring crickets, beetles, mealworms, and fly larvae to mouths around the world. And the market may not need that much prodding. Globally, more than 2 billion people already eat insects, according to the United Nations. Nearly 2,000 types of bugs are edible. And that's catching the attention of food producers. The company behind Chicken of the Sea Tuna, Thai Union, launched a 30 million venture fund to invest in alternative proteins. It's invested in three insect protein startups so far, including an Israeli company that's working on tuna from fruit fly larvae. Antoine Hubert is CEO of Insect in France. So the two main trends are basically meat replacement and forced nutrition, cereal bars or energy drinks, which was the the first market we thought would be the, the first to grow, where it's more about performance and not about taste. The company is building some of the biggest industrial insect farms after attracting millions of dollars in investments from venture capitalists and Hollywood star Robert Downey Jr. Hubert says the industry got a big boost when European Union lawmakers passed legislation this year to allow insects to be fed to farm animals. Last week, crickets were approved as food for humans. They joined mealworms and locusts to get the green light to be marketed in Europe. Lawmakers are also considering nearly a dozen other insects seeking approval to be sold as food. Clearly, the Europe is the more advanced uh, uh, framework there, which is then uh, helping companies to innovate, to grow, to invest with the visibility. And the investors uh, there are, are more have a stronger insurance of success because the markets are out there. The company is selling burger patties made from buffalo mealworm protein that's being offered in restaurants and grocery stores in Austria and Denmark. Mealworm protein has a nutty, mild taste, and it's being used in baked goods and pastas. But the company's bigger business now and for the next few years is selling bug protein as feed for animals. Food giants from Cargill to Archer Daniels Midland are putting money into such initiatives. Katharina Unger of Livin Farms sees that as the low-hanging fruit, turning insects into pet food or as feed for farm animals and fish. Our customers in the food and feed industry, they typically make six-digit losses on their food waste, uh, disposing it at a cost to biogas digesters. And new planet-friendly regulations to cut waste and emissions in Europe and elsewhere put insects front and center to upscale organic food waste. Unger's company has contracts to build three plants next year in Europe and Asia for food and beverage companies. Livin' Farms plans to work with the likes of breweries, bakeries, and juice makers that produce tons of organic waste. With our solution, they can produce higher value products that they can sell so they turn their losses into revenues and into an emission saving process. We save about 70% of emissions turning the waste into insect proteins. The bug protein will be sold to pet food producers while insect oil and excrement called frass is sold as fertilizer. Hubert of Insect also sees more money and investment over the next few years for bug protein and more acceptance by consumers. So we, you will have 
thousands of insect farms in the world that that's supporting this uh, more sustainable food system. You will see insects on the menu uh, everywhere. It will be uh, normal. You won't eat it every day, of course, but it will be normal to sit on the menu in the restaurants, normal to sit in the supermarkets. The company's third factory comes online next year near Paris. It says that will be the world's largest insect farm in the world. For Bloomberg News, I'm Juan Ha. That's it for this episode of Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with a special Christmas episode of Stephanomics featuring the one, the only, Larry Summers. In the meantime, if you like the programme, please rate it and follow at Economics on Twitter for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. As we mentioned earlier, Christopher Cannon worked with Andre Tata on that report on US household spending. Special thanks also to Shuli Wren, Tom Hancock and Juan Ha. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.